Good evening. Welcome to the Pipeline. This is the Western Standards weekly panel show where we'll pick out a few of the top issues of the week and, and analyze them, give our opinions on them, dissect them and discuss them. And boy, there's a lot of issues to discuss this week, I'll tell you. I'm Corey Morgan. I'm a regular columnist in Alberta with the Western Standard, and I'm joined today by, I'm going to start with Nigel Hannaford, our opinion editor. Week by week, aren't you? Yes, uh, I'd like to make sure you're, you're actually listening to me, so uh, if I'm okay. swapping it around. Oh, we, we, we listen to you. Oh, and so do thousands of others. Some do, yes. They don't yeah. all necessarily like it, but they do listen, and that's important. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I see the letters to the editor. Okay. As well, we also have our news editor, Dave Naylor, here today. Great to be on with the Toast of India, yes. the, the latest India media <laughs> sensation, Corey I, Morgan. I'm going to have to learn to dance the, the Bangra or some of those things. To, uh -huh. to Trudeau, I mean, he fit in. Uh, you could barely distinguish him from an Indian citizen when he was there that tour first time. Well, you know, the, in disguise. I'll phone the PMO and see where you get that neat stuff. Certainly, <laughs> they don't return my calls. I think I'm blocked. <laughs> All right. So, yes, uh, we won't talk about India this week. Well, we maybe a little more, but uh, there are big issues uh, and from the prime minister's office. Uh, I'll start with one of our sponsors before we start digging into all that stuff, though. And that's uh, an important thing as well is uh, this is how we stay independent, guys, so we can cover these things that our government uh, doesn't want us to. And uh, the big one is the Canadian Shooting Sports Association. They're a great group if you enjoy firearms, you want to continue to enjoy firearms, owning them, hunting with them, collecting them, target shooting, whatever you want to do. It's your business. That's the thing. It's your business, but your business needs to be protected. And the CSSA is standing up for you because we've got a government that wants to take away your right to do that. If you are not a member of the CSSA yet, guys, get on there, check them out. It's affordable. It's an investment in your own freedoms. Check them out. Canadian Shooting Sports Association, CSSA-CILA.org. It's very important. All right, well, let's talk about some federal politics. Uh, as we see here, the speaker spoke too quick. <laughs> and, uh, well, he's not spoken or speaking anymore whatsoever now. Uh, give us the rundown, Dave. What do we got this week? The rundown, the debacle. Uh, <laughs> Pierre Pauly, I've called it the biggest blunder in Canadian uh, parliamentary history. Uh, this is when the uh, somehow a 92-year-old uh, member of the, a former member. 98. 98, I'm sorry, mm -hmm. uh, the, uh, the Waffen SS uh, was invited to uh, Parliament to witness the, speak, uh, the speech of uh, Ukraine President uh, Zelensky. Uh, then uh, parliamentarians gave him two standing ovations when he was introduced. And it wasn't until afterwards, lo and behold, uh, it was found out that he was a member of this notorious uh, Nazi uh, outfit. And they were really bad boys during the war, no doubt about it. Uh, so there were calls for resignations and apologies all over the weekend. Uh, on Monday, uh, Speaker did resign, uh, took full responsibility. On Wednesday, after three days of hiding, uh, the Prime Minister came out and he, he apologized, not on behalf of himself, uh, on behalf of all parliamentarians. And uh, shockingly to me, he admitted he has not got in touch with uh, President Zelensky yet to offer his personal apology. Uh, you know, he always sort of seems to come across as uh, he and Zelensky are best buddies and uh, they couldn't stop hugging each other uh, during that trip to Ottawa. So it's been a, uh, a uh, seismic week in uh, Ottawa politics, the likes of which I don't think we've ever seen, have we, Nigel? Well, yeah, I think we have. I mean, seismic weeks in politics, boy, how about India just a well, yeah. couple of weeks ago? Involving you know, the speaker. Uh, involving, this is a 
not since, what is it, 1967 or something? The, 57. The 57, yeah. There was a speaker who resigned. Uh, and I, I, I had to look it up just to see if it was anything like it. His name was John Bosley. And he just, the reason he gave was he was just tired of the childish antics in the... Uh, in the House of Commons, he couldn't take it anymore. Yeah. Anyway. That, that was sorry. That was just in the Mulroney days when was the, the Rat Pack, yeah. uh, yeah. you know, the Rat, yeah. see the cops, well, and so uh, that was the eighties. So that yeah, so it was in the eighties. So we're both wrong, but yeah. <laughs> you know, error loves loves company. Um, but no, I mean, to your point, Dave. Obviously, this is a real bag of nails, and this this is. There's so many things that amaze you out of that. There's 338 uh, sitting members of Parliament. Does any of them actually know anything about the war in Eastern Europe? Like, I wouldn't expect them to be experts, and I wouldn't expect all of them to know anything. But I would have thought that, you know, those who are representing Ukrainian writings might have seen this coming and said, just exactly what this, what was this man doing? To be a little bit fair, you know, I watched that clip a number of times. It was very muted applause, applause for, for what those, you know, if we've attended in the gallery at sessions in the legislature, they, they introduce a number of guests and everybody will just almost automatically get up and applaud. You, you almost never refuse to do so. I, I, would I think in this case, the applause was because they felt he was fighting the Russians. Yes. Yeah, and, and uh, I, I think, though, even if I were a member of parliament and I was sitting there, and, and if I had clued in, wait a minute, you know, start to do some math, uh, 98 years old, fighting for the Ukrainians against the Soviet. Jeez, there's only one unit that was doing that, and they weren't on our side. But what are you going to do? Are you going to stand up and shout it out in the middle of the parliamentary uh, event? Or are you going to, you know, take your seat uh, I think all of them were still in shock. I mean, they, they weren't given a warning that this individual was necessarily, you know, they didn't know it until it was announced. So mm -hmm. I think perhaps there were some out there with a knowledge of history who were already realizing, oh, wow, something's going to hit the fan here really fast, but they weren't going to be the ones to raise their hand and say <laughs> it's about Yeah, to. well, I mean, wouldn't they have looked like heroes today if they had? Oh, if one even had just stood up and said, hey, 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 I'm not uh, giving an ovation to a Nazi, uh, you know. but you better be... That's part of it. You know, you're on the floor. You just got gobsmacked. You better be 100% sure you heard what you heard. You don't want to call an innocent man a Nazi. Well, that was, uh, still, that's the you, prime minister's job. I mean, there are some, some members of parliament who represent areas where the Ukrainian presence is something they have to acknowledge and work with. Maybe they are Ukrainian themselves. It's, uh, it was, and, of course, the other side of it is the, the staffers in, the, in this whole thing. I mean, there's been a lot of talk. Well, the speaker's office should have caught it, or it was the security people who should have caught it. You know, when I was in the PMO, staffers were got involved in this kind of thing, and we checked out the people that we were going to, to have in. The speaker's office has staffers. Do they not do that sort of thing? Do they not feed that information to the uh, security agents and say, have you got anything on, on any of these people? Happens to be a Ukrainian this time. It could easily be somebody else from a completely different context. Canada having so many contexts. Somebody didn't do their job. And what I took offense to with the Prime Minister's apology was within the space of 15 seconds, he said, I apologize. It was the speaker's fault. That's not an apology. No, it's throwing and, under the bus. And the other thing that you noted, David, I believe he hasn't, 
as far as we know, contacted Zelensky. I mean, there's a, a victim, if anybody, in this. I mean, Putin must have been just spitting his vodka and laughing his brains out when he saw his enemies standing there when he's been trying to connect him to Nazis for yeah. years, yeah. applauding a literal Nazi. I mean, you couldn't have staged a better event for Putin's PR well, machine. You know, maybe Zelensky's not taking his phone calls at the moment. <laughs> You know, he, he may be that angry. You know, uh, that's not beyond the realm of possibility. Uh, but they, they gave uh, they gave Polyev two full days in Parliament to just swing for the fences. And uh, uh, the poor Liberal House Minister Gould was reduced to a to a quivering uh, quivering mass by by the end of it. But I was going to ask you, Nigel. You've worked in PMOs. What is the strategy behind hiding for three days? Well, Harvard, Harvard didn't hide that much, but I guess when you, uh, there have been times, I think there was a time when uh, Bol Thomas Volcker was just grinding relentlessly on about, uh, about um, a certain senator who lived rather well. Uh, there's only so many times you can get up and answer that question. And so sometimes if an opportunity comes to go elsewhere for the day, you take it. However, that had not happened in this case. This was happened on Friday. The prime minister had a duty to be there on Monday and explain himself. Not only was he not there on Monday, he was not there on Tuesday. And this little so-called apology that he issued was intended. I'm sure he didn't didn't honestly believe it would work, but it was intended to deflect from the uh, from from what would happen in question period later. Well, you know, I've already dealt with that that kind of. A, Thing. Yeah, and he, I, I thought, by the way, that uh, Pierre uh, Polliver was relatively restrained in his attacks on uh, on, uh, on the government yesterday. I mean, he did save his best for for the prime minister when he finally returned. Yeah, and to be clear, Trudeau was in Ottawa on Monday. He had private meetings, whatever they are, in the morning. And he met with BC Premier Eby in Ottawa. Or was it in Ottawa? He was in Ottawa, and then on Tuesday he took a quick jaunt to Toronto. Uh, so he, he was around. It wasn't a case of he was on a foreign mission somewhere. Uh, he just chose to deliberately not attend Parliament. I would think part of it, though, I mean, you know, what everyone might think of Trudeau. I mean, I know you and I differ on where we, our views of where his intellect may land. But one thing I think is true is he's not good at thinking on his feet, though. When it's something this big, he needs coaching. It's time to, because that's what he does. He'll stonewall and he'll give the same answer over, as we saw in question period today. But if he has to come up with his answer to stonewall like that, he, he gets in trouble. And you, so, you could see him in question period, you know, referring to a sheet where he had yeah, his notes. Yeah. Uh, so he needed his day to, okay, how can I just sit and deflect rather than take responsibility or try and, you know, take this as a leader and, and speak to it. He's not capable, in my view, of that. He he needs his coached answers. One thing I'm not seeing come out of this that I thought would come out of it by now is an agreement with all the parties to say, okay, the next time this happens, this is what we're going to do. Like, why haven't they come together and, and formed a, an all-party committee to work on uh, getting a plan in action? So the next time a world leader speaks in, in the House of Commons, we know. We know what's going to be investigated and, and uh, you know, how, who's going to do the vetting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that would mean surrendering a certain amount of control. Wouldn't it? You know, if you're if you're the government, you probably don't want to do that. I mean, you'd have to listen to the NDP and the Green Party as well as the Conservatives. That might be hard to take. Well, look at the alternative. What they're dealing with now? Oh, once every once every fifty years. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's uh, you know the, the unfortunate thing is is no matter how much they try to just fully lay this on Rody's feet as if he unilaterally did this, which I still find hard to believe. The timing that he picked a Ukrainian veteran on the day 
this was part of a whole staged affair. I mean, there was an error. They, they certainly didn't mean to do this, but uh, there were more minds involved in seeking out this gentleman and bringing him in than just Rody. In fact, I got a feeling the way he was reading that form that he didn't know anything about this guy who was coming in, even though he was technically the one reading for it. But the nuances of whether the speaker is independent or isn't independent or isn't partisan, it doesn't matter. As far as the world is concerned, when they see an ovation for a Nazi, they don't look at all of that. The average Canadian doesn't look at all of that or understand that the speaker's independence. This is going to land on Trudeau's support numbers, whether he thinks it's going to or not. Oh, yeah. yeah, you can't deflect this to the speaker. Uh, Nigel and I were talking about it uh, yesterday. Uh, you, you almost, I don't want to say you feel sorry for this old man because he was a Nazi at some point, but he had no idea what he was getting himself into either, I'm sure. Uh, you know, he's now could be... Uh, uh, sent to Poland to, to face trial. They're talking about maybe extraditing him and stuff like that. So, I mean, is there a point? You know, these events happened uh, in 1940s. Uh, is there a point where it's okay, forgive and forget, move on? Well, I think I, I think the point at which that uh, comes up is probably for the offended people uh, Correct, to, to yes. decide. But you know, let, let's let's try and. We tried to be fair to Mr. Trudeau just now. Let's try and be fair to this elderly gentleman. At the time that he joined up, he was 18 years old. 18-year-old boys tend to see things pretty simply. And what he had witnessed in his life was a deliberate campaign of starvation by the Stalinist government in the Soviet Union against his people. It's called the Holodomor. They actually went and they stole the food from the farms so they could feed the Russian people and pretend that everything was, was good. Meanwhile, the, the Ukrainians died. That happened, and it happened in his lifetime, and he saw that. So the first person to come along and say, hey, do you want to go fight the Russians? Join up, we'll give you a gun, and you're on your way, probably had his attention. And many of the things that we hold against uh, the Nazis now were either A, not known at the time in his area, like how could he have known, and B, this was the middle of 1943, a lot of things hadn't happened yet. So from, you, you know, a kid, let's face it, we, we, we all have 18-year-olds in our lives at some point, and the consensus is that they tend not to know much, but they're very passionate about what they do know. I can see how easily... Anybody in those circumstances could have said, sure, sign me up. Where do I, where do I sign? I mean, there were millions of young men in Japan, in Canada, in the United States, in Great Britain, in Germany, in all the combatant countries. They were making the same choice. My country's at war. What do I, what do, I do? So, you know, who, there's no specific incidents laid at his feet that I am aware of. No, it, so, it, he could have seen I mean, that the Nazis is the lesser of two evils. In a, in a, when you're in a rough part of the world, you're, you're choosing between authoritarian dictatorships. The, the, the Russians were the most recent ones to abuse you. I have little to lose and yeah. throw on my hat in the ring with these guys. because uh, Derek made a very good point about that yesterday, actually. And he said, you know, on the Western Front, there was a, literally a good guy, bad guy scenario. On the Eastern Front, you just had two bad guys. Yeah, well, and I, I remember reading up on it too. When initially, actually, when the Eastern Front started, the Nazis came in a lot of Russian villages. Uh, it was just uh, one dictator over another. They weren't too concerned. It didn't. 
it didn't matter. They just wanted to literally, it wasn't until the Nazis started brutalizing the local villagers that they built a resistance over in Russia. Yeah. Otherwise, they were, hey, march on by, head to Moscow. I don't care. But again, that's all sort of moot to the point of, yes, in that case, the gentleman should have been allowed to rest out the final few years in obscurity. And as I said on my show earlier, it's between him, if, if there was any actions in his God or his conscience, but now it's been brought into the spotlight, but he just never should have been brought into parliament in the first place. That's the, yeah. the well, that's, I think, I think everybody's agreed on that. Yeah. So it's, uh, <laughs> no, I, I, I just, just my thoughts. I don't think you look good chasing a 98 year old man out of the country. No, Probably not something that uh, would be good politics. So this has opened up other stuff too. Like some of this was covered uh, with the, uh, the Ukrainian members who had come to Canada in the fifties because people have been asking, they say, well, why wasn't that brought at the Nuremberg trials? And, well, for one, they were already full. They had enough war criminals at their plate as it was, who were far worse. These mm -hmm. are death camp operators and, and other such uh, uh, evil personas. They basically said they didn't give them clearance, but they said, we're not going to go further with you. And yeah, 2000, a, at least 2000. Yeah, yeah. a decision, just, just mm -hmm. move on. We, we aren't, you know, uh, exonerating you, but we're saying leave it behind. Uh, but now the Benai Breath and others are getting up and saying, well, why did we do that? What is the record on that? And they're re-examining in hindsight. I don't think anybody's going to extradite and find out the, the few dozen remaining anymore or any of that. But uh, it's opened up a whole new area of Canadian history to re-examine. Right, and that's, a, that's another interesting point that you're bringing up there, Corey, that the people who made those decisions, quite a lot of them, were probably Canadian veterans. You know, I don't know how, you know, you sort of transit out of the armed forces and into the government service in some kind or other. People who had actually been in action and probably had a very much more nuanced view of, uh, of, of what other people had been through and made a made a decision based on, well, dare I say, maybe a little bit of compassion even. I don't know. It's hard to say. But it's a war time. We were a long time ago. It was 80 years ago. Atroc years. Atrocities happened on both sides, too. It's just you never hear about the ones the victors might have committed, uh, aside from Dresden. Yeah. And uh, it, it was ugly. It's, it's unfortunate we're revisiting this uh, in the way we are right now. As we said, maybe hopefully, though, they're examining it and at least learning. We need some degree of vetting with people. We, we don't lose that freedom. It's a, a big honor for a member of parliament to invite a constituent to be able to stand in the gallery and get that shout out. Yeah. Uh, but you don't necessarily want it to be a screaming protester who's going to throw eggs or, uh, you know, hang and drape a flag over the edge or any of that either. So uh, I got a feeling it's going to be tougher to get into parliament. To, to Ironically, uh, the speaker had his uh, uh, open tea yesterday. It was supposed to happen last night for all members of the press gallery and, uh, and uh, MPs. Uh, he, as a speaker, he gets a government house. It's called the Farm uh, in, in Quebec, and it was supposed to happen there. And uh, not surprisingly, he got cancelled after he uh, resigned. So uh, uh, I'm sure his wife's not overly happy. I, I don't think uh, they're probably having some nasty conversations at the moment. Well, this is big. He's got to move. He's, he's you know he's, he's one of those housed uh, positions. Mm -hmm. So your life's been turned upside down, and, and you're going to get a pay cut of $90,000 a year. Uh, yeah. So, and one of the interim speakers is actually a separatist member of the bloc. Is it the bloc? So, <laughs> just when you think Parliament can't get any, uh, yeah. any uh, more chaos. Put a bloc member in as a Canadian speaker. One of the first two words of the national anthem are, oh, Canada. <laughs> Sometimes, whoa, Canada. Yeah. Oh, man. Change the intonation of it. Maybe they'll ask me for the job. You know, if you were a script writer, they wouldn't let you do this. Would they? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. People won't, won't, People won't, won't believe it. Nobody would ever think that. Uh, well, let's get on to something a little drier, but uh, still a big issue. I mean, it's kind of gotten overshadowed with this whole event. It's just the, the 
long-awaited uh, report on the Alberta pension plan was released last week. It was. Uh, Premier Daniel Smith uh, announced it uh, late last week at the, the McDougall Centre. Uh, looking at some of their advertising, uh, you know, very slick uh, campaign. It's obviously something that's been worked on for, for, for months and months. But uh, uh, the bottom line, I think, uh, for most people is uh, uh, Premier Smith says uh, Alberta is owed $534 billion dollars from the Canada Pension Panel, which is more than half of uh, the $570 billion in total. So that shows you how much uh, Alberta has overpaid uh, over the years. And uh, she is sort of promoting... Uh, uh, you can, uh, you, oh, bless you, Nigel. Uh, she's saying uh, we may be able to pay pay less and get more out of it if we, if we go the Alberta way. But... Uh, uh, there are going to be a uh, panel chaired by former treasurer Jim Dinning, who, uh, as we know, uh, cleared Alberta's debt at, uh, at one point. And he's going to go around the province and listen to what uh, people have to say. And I expect people will be uh, loud and uh, vocal uh, whichever way they, they choose to go, Nigel. Yes, they, they certainly will. I mean, the, the fundamental argument in favor of doing this is pretty sound. Um, it's a young workforce. They're not drawing on pensions. The fact that we have overpaid so much indicates another one of those systemic inequalities in Confederation. People have got a, like, why do you work hard in order to pay for somebody somewhere else to retire? Maybe they sh maybe there should be, well, maybe they should be paying a little more to fund their own retirement. That's like, Pay, you, you working to pay for your neighbor. Now, so all, uh, the difficulty, I think, in the plan comes in actually making it happen. If you lend your deadbeat brother 500 bucks, there's no question that he owes it to you, but how do you get it out of him? And how, even assuming <coughs> that once the formulas have been examined, and that's going to be the first objection, oh, well, you know, you, your numbers are... Your numbers are wrong. It couldn't possibly be that much. Let's say, let's say that they actually do line up and find a number. Well, all right, we agree that you've overpaid by this much. We understand that you want to leave. Uh, you are by law entitled to take that with you, but we can't afford to give it to you. So this then becomes a national issue because the Canada Pension Plan has only got one place to go. It's not a government agency, but it can only go to the federal government. And so you're going to have, um, let's say that the election result goes the way that I think we all want it to in two years' time. And you've got Prime Minister Polyev, and you've got Premier Daniel Smith, and these two natural allies have now got this horrible conflict between them. How is that going to work out? So... Uh, this is a really, this is a really tough one. The plan idea is fine, and it would, and I, to the degree that I can tell, it would work as advertised by the government of Alberta. Getting it over that particular hurdle is going to require some creative thinking by the, by the people concerned. And I think uh, speaking to what you were talking about with uh, Prime Minister Polyev, it's also given Trudeau a wedge issue that he can go and say, "Look, Alberta is trying to rip the rest of the country oh, yeah. off." And he can use, certainly use it uh, uh, to his benefit. Uh, the idea itself is 
kind of gone over like a lead balloon across the country with other provinces, as you would expect it would. Mm-hmm. Uh, New, uh, Saskatchewan uh, officials, Newfoundland officials, uh, even the, the people in charge of the CCPs uh, said, you know, no. Uh, so it is, it is going to take a lot of uh, persuading and uh, you know, arguing to get it through. So the rest of the country basically takes the position, too bad, we're going to go on ripping you off forever? Exactly. Yeah. Well, because their, their residents are going to have to pay more. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, and, and that's where some of those discussions maybe will finally get serious in front of some Canadians, though. Why are you vulnerable like that? This is supposed to be a pension plan, not a social welfare program. So I'm expected, I should be expecting, I put in this much. That's my fund that's building, that's, that's sitting in there, that's waiting for me to draw from. And I'm supposed to accept then that it'll be a lesser amount because we're funding others who put in less elsewhere. Mm-hmm. Or we're of a different age demographic, which is no fault of my own. Uh, I know we'll be painted as selfish for daring to say that. But again, we're not talking about... Uh, uh, any other transfer payment? This is supposedly a pension plan. And, and, uh, no, and uh, I think I think Nigel wrote about it. Uh, in fact, I know he, he wrote about it. Is Canada pension plan has done okay for itself? And was a ten percent uh, yeah. uh, basically, which is a lot better than uh, my current uh, investment mm-hmm. portfolio. So, and one of the big arguments in Alberta is going to be okay. Who gets control of this? Thing? Who runs it? Uh, you know, and I think Daniel Smith has made it pretty clear it's going to be an you know, an arm's length uh, organization that runs it. Uh, uh, but, that, you know, that's going to be a worry for a lot of people is who's going to control the money. Yeah, and, and that is worth worrying about. But the, like, we're talking about a pretty substantial difference here. Like, they're, they're quoting for $1,425 a year less in premiums, more than $100 a month. So we actually now, to support the rest of Canada, are all paying $100 a month more than we need to. That's a pretty strong argument. And by the way, that goes for the employer as well because they're maxed. It's costing businesses a lot of money. It's cost it, you bet. It, I mean, it, it could open the door too. So, I mean, that, that, that's just the first shot. That's the calculation based on what they wrote up back in 66, I believe, when it was formed. Uh, that was the exit clause. It was Ontario, mm-hmm. actually, that insisted on having that within the legislation. I mean, technically, we're just following the letter of the legislation. And they didn't anticipate this kind of regional imbalance, I think, in the fund at that time when when uh, talking about somebody extricating themselves from it. But maybe, I'm just throwing it out, some different negotiations might come. Well, maybe Alberta can do a phased exit. The people who have the investment in the plan will still be entitled to what will come out for what they put in so far. But starting at this point, they're going to contribute to this new one. And that way your old funds are protected, but we're on to a new one so you don't keep contributing to that pool because the disparity is only going to get worse or things like that. A lot of people on the uh, the Alberta separate argument basically mm-hmm. saying, we just want what Quebec has. Mm-hmm. And guess who's got their own pension plan? Mm-hmm. Quebec does. So if they can run it, uh, I've heard no problems about it. I've heard, I think, assume it's running smoothly. So if they can do it, why can't Alberta? Well, Alberta can. It's just that the rest of the country will have, Ontario especially, which originally wanted the exit clause because they were a half province in those days, probably figured they might be getting ripped off by the rest of the country. Now it's working in their favor. Not so keen. No. I mean, the, the motivations are, with everybody concerned, are very easily understandable. Um, who, who would vote to pay more if you lived in Ontario? Who would vote to carry on paying as much as we do if you live in Alberta? 
So, and the, the, the timing is very uh, interesting, isn't it, Nigel, that all the reports and the, the UCP final decision on what they're going to do is just a few months before the next provincial election. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, yeah. You can certainly see the battle lines being drawn, and Rachel Null is already screaming from high hell. Well, uh, Rachel Nutley uh, and her union followers all have separate pension plans that are very lucrative uh, for those who are solely relying on government pension plans there. Uh, Looking at a lean retirement. Yes, yes, it wouldn't take you very far, would it? I mean, Premier Smith only has to sell it in Alberta. Mm-hmm. That's that's something. Some people are howling in other parts of the country, but that's not her concern. As um, no. it, it puts Polyev in a terrible spot if he becomes prime minister. Like I said, it uh, if, if Trudeau comes out and, and says he's going to fight to the death for it, and you're uh, you're a Torontonian and you're going to have to pay fourteen hundred bucks a year more, maybe enough to swing a vote. Certainly might. And then on, on top of that, you also have the emotive argument about Alberta, the renegade on climate change. So yes. I, I can, you know, people were fantasizing here about what would a, a future Prime Minister Polyev do, but it may not be. Uh, future Prime Minister Polyev might be the same old story. Because that's how the Liberals always win, is by division. And the, the next election is still a ways away. It's never it's about a, building you know, a consensus. Yeah, no, it's one of those things that's not done until it's done. Well, getting on to, I guess, you know, climate change, the bad actor Alberta is, but I, and just in general, uh, can anybody afford electricity anymore? We're starting to uh, see the real costs are starting to come in now, I think. You know, people are grinding it through, not just about saving the world from uh, uh, evil forms of electrical generation, but now realizing that it's not cheap to save the world from these other uh, generations. No, my electricity bill was 200 bucks last month. I mean, come on. Uh, but uh, the people in Ontario got hit with uh, with a sticker shock uh, uh, yesterday, as reported by Sean Polzer, that uh, a think tank has come up with a figure of $3,300 a month. Uh, no, that, it's a year, isn't it? No, I thought it was a month. I think it was a year. Was it? Oh, okay. Maybe. It's, it's yeah, you're right. Yearly. It's still a big buy. Yearly. $3,300 a year by yeah, 20 like $300 a month. Yeah. That was 200 so that, Yeah. So uh, is maybe we should let Sean in on uh, that. was about to say, we've got him on tech. <laughs> yeah. Why don't we pull him in there? Hey, Sean, how you doing? Doing all right, guys. How are you? Good, good. So as Dave already sort of self-corrected, but it was your story there. Uh, what do we got going on? It looks like a, an energy reality check has kind of uh, landed in Ontario. Well, it was the um, Canadians for Affordable Energy, and uh, they put out a report, and it's basically using the numbers from the independent electric system operator in Ontario. We have one, too, It's which is called the Alberta Electric System Operator, and uh, just uh, outline some scenarios of uh, what would happen if they had to uh, stop using natural gas, which comes from Alberta, under the uh, proposed so-called clean electricity uh, regulations that uh, were tabled earlier in that uh, Alberta problem. Alberta politicians have had such a problem. So, yeah, and uh, Ontario only relies on about, uh, unlike Alberta, they use natural gas to back up uh, basically their nukes and and their wind. So it only supplies about 10% of their overall electricity uh, compared to more than 80% here in Alberta. And what they're saying is that they were forced to retire these uh, gas-fired plants early. Um, it would result in about a 3.5% reduction in GDP, uh, 60% increase in power bills. So that's where the 
bucks per household per year comes from and uh, possibly even uh, tip uh, the government into a deficit after 2030. I noticed that uh, I think they had about a $2 billion surplus this year and uh, this would reduce government revenues anywhere like four or $5 billion a year after 2030. So outside of electrical generation, does this apply to household natural gas use as well for heating and cooking and whatnot? Because that would uh, impact your electric bill if you had to switch all that over as well. Did, did you take that into account too? As far as I know, it was only uh, with regards to uh, op operating the power grid. So um, whatever other electrical appliances and things that are used in there, it, did, it didn't specifically reference um, getting rid of natural gas stoves, for instance, like uh, they're talking about doing in Quebec, I believe, is uh, effective January 1st of this year. Okay, so I just think, see, that's a great irony, guys, because what you could do then is, well, I want to save money on my electricity, so I'm going to take out my electric range and take out my electric heating system and bring in natural gas because it'll be cheaper than my electric bill now that they've gotten rid of gas-fired uh, electricity. Yeah, the shoe is about to drop, uh, as Sean will tell you, uh, in Alberta tomorrow. Uh, that $3,300 uh, a year increase in Ontario, they only use 10% 10 natural gas. In Alberta, it's 80%. So uh, can you imagine that figure that's going to come down tomorrow for Alberta? Well, and the consequences. Again, we start getting to the, where do we go with this? Is This, this is due to a national policy and provinces responding to it, but then uh, electrical generation is provincial policy. We've, do you think, Nigel, we might see Ontario finally becoming a bit more of a vocal ally with Alberta on this sort of issue? Well, you know, it would be logical, wouldn't it? Well, logically. <laughs> well, yeah, but I mean, I didn't actually expect the, uh, the Ontario government to be taking a logical point of view on some other matters that related to the, you know, how children are instructed in schools either, but it seems that they actually do react to, uh, when they don't have an answer, they react to what the public is saying. And here we are with a, uh, apparently a sound calculation that everybody's going to be paying $290 a month more for power if they carry on with this, that's got to, uh, that, that's got to send people back to the drawing board. I mean, there's one thing for Alberta to object to what the federal government is trying to pull, but when you've got Ontario saying, just a minute, maybe we should rethink this. Maybe we should put this off for a period of time. Then that rather undercuts what we were saying just a few moments ago about the uh, Prime Minister being able to build a, a solid block against uh, Alberta and Saskatchewan. You know, these people are not going to want to pay another $290 a month for their electricity. Lord knows we certainly don't. So I think we've got a common interest there. Well, and again, I, I, I think... I think it's part of the problems among many that the federal liberals just can't seem to understand and grasp. When they realize there's an affordability issue in Canada, they realize that they're losing in the polls because people can't afford their mortgages, their rent, their utilities, and their food, but they can't bring themselves to relax their iron grip on their ideology that they have to stop these sorts mm -hmm. of generation. Like Dave, as you're saying, your, your bill is already and the rest of us in the hundreds of dollars a month. We can't afford it. Like ideology of the common citizen goes out the window if you're worried about freezing to death or starving. I mean, or at least, you know, losing weight and living colder. Yeah. And mm -hmm. speaking of the liberals, uh, Sean just finished a story on uh, uh, Wilkinson announced uh, the sort of the route to oil and gas emissions and uh, 
it didn't quite get up to Alberta's red line, but it looks like it's coming pretty close. I think Sean can. Yeah, Sean. So, I mean, we, we've been hearing that talk for quite a while, too. They keep nudging around the edges of it and everything. Gil Bowles sort of hinting at it as well. Like, are we seeing the beginnings of them coming up with a formal emissions cap soon? Well, Gil has wanted to put in the emissions cap now uh, for weeks, and he's been delayed. And part of the reason is because Premier Smith has essentially said that if, if they come through with uh, an emissions cap while they're doing this roundtable talks, that they're off. Like, uh, it, it's over, though. You know, uh, it, it sounds to me she's pretty determined that if they do uh, introduce these caps, that uh, she'll walk away from these uh, so-called consultations, which include the electricity regulations, by the way, that are supposed to be going on for the better part of a year. And uh, Minister Jabot has said that he wants to unveil these caps by the time they head off to the uh, COP28 summit in Dubai in uh, the beginning of December, which uh, Premier Smith has also said that she will attend to uh, unveil these um, carbon capture incentives, which are near and dear to her heart. So part of the package that uh, Wilkinson introduced today um, made mention of carbon capture, but also said that the primary focus of government policy is going to be to remove those emissions before they even hit the atmosphere, which is code word for an emissions cap, which is actually spelled out in, in this policy document that he supposedly went to Paris to attend a critical minerals conference, but instead dropped a carbon management program, you know, in the shadow of the Eiffel Tower. But uh, it, it says right in there, uh, emissions cap on oil and gas in brackets pending. So, so it, it's coming. The question that I, I'd love you to speculate, Sean, why did the minister make that announcement in Paris? If you're talking about policy that you're going to try and organize in Canada, wouldn't, uh, wouldn't it have been a good thing to put that to the House of Commons now that it's sitting again, or at least uh, announce it at a trade or uh, a trade show such as we've had here in Calgary recently? Why Paris? Well, that, that would have been a brilliant idea. Uh, the reason that they went to Paris is because they're using the numbers in the IEA uh, roadmap to net zero that was released uh, earlier this spring, uh, You know where they're talking about 25 million barrels a day of uh, oil demand and production by 2045 or whatever it is, you know, a number that the Saudis flat out said at the World Petroleum Congress is fantasy. Not, o not only is it fantasy, it's, it's dangerous. So he went to Paris ostensibly to talk about critical minerals. And the irony is, is that about an hour after this uh, rather lengthy policy document, it's, uh, you know, it's on the interweb so i don't know how many pages it is but it's got to be about 30 or 40 pages uh you know they issued uh like maybe a two-page briefing note that uh canada is going to have bilateral discussions with france on uh, critical mineral supply chains so well, didn't why uh, maybe they went maybe they went for the food guys you know i heard that uh, the food in france is uh pretty decent this time of year so, so right across the river from a 15th century wine cellar <laughs> John, didn't you find it ironic that uh, Wilkinson in Paris making uh, or dropping this announcement when uh, just across the channel, uh, the Brits are announcing yet another multi-billion dollar deal to uh, go look for more oil? 
Yeah, that's true. Um, and I actually haven't got to writing that one up yet. It was on my list this morning, but all these other things happened. Yeah, $3.8 billion uh, development in the North Sea. Um, Prime Minister Sumac, Sunak. Uh, so this one's going to be done from Equinor, which is Norwegian uh, state oil company. So Norway has become the largest supplier of both oil and gas to the EU since uh, the Russian invasion. And they obviously have no intent on uh, slowing down. And it comes about a week after the British Prime Minister announced uh, plans that they are stepping away from some of their own net zero goals um, due to the affordability crisis that they're having in their own country. So it seems that the answer is not less oil and gas and fossil fuels, but actually more in the interim. The world goes one way, Canada goes the other. Yeah, well, you know, the, the issue with the speaker and the the, un, the unwanted guest is very easy to understand. And it's very easy to say, well, look, it makes us look bad in the world. The issues in India are actually relatively easy to understand. And you can see how it makes us look bad to the rest of the world. But this stuff that Sean is talking about is so wrapped up in reports and files and research and organizations that meet in hot places to talk about the global warming oh, crisis. And it isn't so easy to understand, but for my money, this is actually one of the most serious issues that we have to face, that this government apparently does not care that people will freeze to death in the dark if their policies are fully consummated because even if they can get electricity, they won't be able to afford it. This is like not having enough to eat kind of serious. Uh, the liberals are dangerous. Well, absolutely, and, and, and it shows as well. I mean, as you mentioned, it's, this it's that different world though. It is a different world. Those ones who attend those climate conferences, as Sean pointed out, these are uh, IEA, that's International Energy Agency, I believe, uh, targets, not domestic ones that we're binding ourselves to. I mean, Trudeau has always wanted to be the, the star on the foreign stage, and he's done a terrible job of it, ironically, despite that being his priority. But it sounds like, as we said, other countries like the UK, Norway, they're becoming pragmatic. They're realizing, hey, we like this stuff, but we can't afford to do this. We, we, we've got to get back to these fossil fuels. But Canada is the laggard in this. We, we, we mm. just insist on mm -hmm. self-flagellation over this. And, and you know, we're, we're trying to do all this with the electricity. We're billions of people in, in Africa who just like electricity. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, with some, some great 900 million people do not have electricity. Yeah, I think Africa. it was even more than that. That's uh, one of those, I, I find, repugnant yeah. attitudes from a lot of these these developed world environmentalists when we've got developing nations that really could use affordable energy to develop their entire economy because it's so key to everything and they'll say here have a windmill thank us for it no mm -hmm. no we won't give you natural gas no we won't let you dam that river we won't let you uh, have a, a nuclear facility but here's some windmills and solar panels and come on guys you'll be all right won't you mm -hmm. it's just a disconnect from reality and it's like the liberals are trying to bring us down, bring Canada down to a third world level, because that's what will happen, Nigel, yep. when people can't afford uh, uh, the electricity and whatnot. You think we have a problem with 10 cities now? You wait for five years if all this stuff uh, goes through. Third world, we've already got the colored money. Yes, indeed. Well, there's a lot of irony. I mean, so you, you briefly mentioned uh, carbon capture as well, Sean. So, I mean, I, part of it is 
it just seems that we never get credit for the effort we've done in our industries on that sort of thing. Like uh, that's being ignored, uh, the progress that's been made so far. It's not considered a, if we could bring carbon capture to a certain level that our energy generation would be sustainable. Well, there was a considerable portion of the document, like I said, was uh, devoted to carbon capture. Uh, Canada has the most functioning carbon capturing facilities uh, in the world. Uh, we've got, uh, you know, the Quest up near uh, Edmonton. There's Boundary Dam in Saskatchewan. Uh, there was that uh, direct air capture in Squamish that just got sold to Occidental for a billion dollars. Ironically, to produce more oil is what they're going to use it for. But, um, you know, uh, and there there was a note in there, you know, saline aquifers in uh, Western Canada Basin. So these are associated with oil production, you know, the conventional oil production that we've had around here for the last 75 years, um, have enough geological storage space to store, I think it was 800 years worth of Canada's emissions at the current rates. And it, and it could be even higher, it could be, you know, a thousand years. But then the policy of the government is not necessarily to abate so there's a recognition that these technologies will be needed to, to meet the net zero because there's going to be some residual emissions from other industries like cement for instance like more cement is used in the world than water it is the absolute most uh used commodity on earth but that the policy of the government is going to be to basically reduce those emissions before they even get there you know, so uh, they're they're talking like uh, carbon capture is only going to be about five percent of uh, this uh, solution that they have in mind towards net zero. So, well, uh, keep watching and seeing what they come up with. Uh, thanks for it, it is a bit of a head scratcher, I have to say. Thanks for uh, watching and reporting on it while the rest of us are distracted with the parliamentary navel gazing and idiocy <laughs> that they've got going on in the other front. Because it's easy to forget that the, the rest of the world and the policies are still happening right now. And it's all being overshadowed by just unimaginable uh, uh, events. All right. Well, thanks, Sean. Uh, just one quick, I guess, to, to wrap it up, too. We didn't mention... One of the first actions the Liberals did when Parliament first sat was to try and get unanimous consent to have this whole affair stricken from Hansard and from video records so as if it never happened. That was their first instinct was to cover up rather than apologize or figure out what happened, what went wrong or anything. But let's just get it out of the way. Yeah, I, you know, every now and then I get a letter from somebody who darkly suggests that everything that's being done is about control and suppression of thought and this kind of thing. And yeah, yeah well, you know, we, we do get those letters and there's, there's something there, but I don't know whether it's what they say is there. But boy, oh boy, if you wanted to make the case, the actual elimination, like photoshopping people out of the picture, as it were, yeah. if I can use that as a metaphor, just pretend this didn't happen. That actually supports a rather nasty. Uh, it feeds it. Uh, it feeds it. Um, you know, <sighs> we don't do ourselves any favors in this country. It seems. No. <laughs> so, all right. Well, I think we've solved a few of the world's problems. Hopefully, they were all listening. We know our Indian audience is always well tuned <laughs> in. So, I uh, thank you very much, Dave and Nigel and. Thank you. Uh, Nico for keeping everything running and Sean who's on his way out. And of course, all of you guys for viewing and uh, make sure, Hey, if you haven't got a subscription yet, westernstandard.news slash membership, take one out. This is how we can keep bringing this stuff to you guys. So thank you all for tuning in today. Try to stay warm, put in a wood stove. It's going to get expensive and we'll see you all again next week at this time.
Here's an update on commodity prices in Lethbridge for today. Cash barley remains at 335. Feed wheat is steady at 350. While October corn is unchanged at 350, and November December corn is trading at 318. In the milling wheat markets, December Minneapolis futures dropped 13 and a half cents to 7.53 per bushel, with local hardware at spring bid for October movement at 9.40 per bushel. Looking at canola, November futures added $11.90 at 7.2610 per ton, with delivered buys for October movement at 16.12 per bushel. In the pulse markets, nearby red lentil prices are holding at 36.5 cents per pound, and yellow peas are higher 25 cents at 10.75 a bushel. In the cattle markets, October live cattle are higher 45 cents at 185.25 per hundred weight. For more information on pricing or picked up options, give me a call at 403-394-1711. I'm Matt Buscom at Marketplace Commodities. Accurate, real-time marketing information and pricing options. Canadian Shooting Sports Association. Without the CSSA, our gun rights would have been taken long, long ago. These guys are on the front lines helping to draft smart and intelligent firearms regulations and legislation in Canada, and more importantly, educating the public about how we keep guns out of the hands of the wrong people. To become a member, it's absolutely worth every penny. You can become a Western Standard member for just $10 a month or $99 a year for unlimited access.